This morning as we look through Luke chapter 9, we're coming here to one of the most significant events in the life of Jesus. Uh, Out of the three major events in life, we have his birth and we have his death and resurrection, of course. Those are the two supreme moments. In the middle of that, uh, here in this passage, we come to what we commonly know as the transfiguration. Uh, This is the third of those three monumental moments in the life of Jesus Christ. Let's begin by reading through this portion of Scripture. We're going to start in verse 27 and read through verse 36 this morning. It says in Luke Luke 9, verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James, went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. and Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this most beautiful and magnificent moment in your life, Lord, as we've read and sung already this morning, we pray that you would teach us, you would show us your ways more of who you are, that we might give you the praise and the glory that you are due. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are at this, this moment here, this transfiguration as we often know it as Jesus. Transfiguration, of course, simply means to, it's, we get it from the same sort of word as metamorphosis, uh, which means to, to change appearance. And uh, here's what we have of Jesus, a moment where we see a change of appearance of Jesus in this defining moment. Uh, He is building here. This whole process builds on what we've seen before, the confession that the disciples made earlier up in verse 20 and and 21 of uh, that Jesus is the Christ of God. And so he's been building on that very thought that he is Christ. And here this is going to uh, take us even further into that. It's a passage which I suspect to many of us here this morning is very familiar. Uh, If you've been in Sunday school, you've probably heard it. It's one of the stories that's in just about every curriculum. Or if you've been in church for very long, heard it or read it or read through your Bible. It's one that is one of the most familiar of it. But I suspect that also, much like Peter, when we read it, many of us just don't know what to do with it. Uh, What's the point of it? Why is it here? What is it trying to to show us? Or we just get overwhelmed by what it's, it's showing us. And so this morning, really, this morning and then next week, I want to look more why it's here and what it what it means so today as we look through it we're going to look at this passage and we're going to see what it means and why jesus is 
is there and what happens. And then next week, I want to look at the implications that it has. You see, because what we have here is Jesus with three men, Peter, John, and James. And this moment had immense impact on them beyond this moment. They would write about it later. In fact, I, I think, and I'm no um, scholar in, in textual scholar, but I think this moment had a huge influence on the way John wrote his gospel. Uh, so much of John's gospel is filled with, with light and life and that Jesus is the Christ. And I think it's from this moment around which John gets that main theme he wants to build his gospel from. And then Peter will talk about how it, how it affected him. And so I want to look at those and see what do we do with it? So we're going to look at it this morning and we're going to see what it is and why it's here. And then next week we're going to look at what do we do with it? What does it mean? How did it change the lives of John and Peter particularly. And so we want to look this morning and here and, and see what happens, learn some lessons today, uh, and follow it up. If you want to prepare in advance for, for what comes next, you can read through 2 Peter chapter 1 and First uh, John chapter 1. Um, in both of those places, John and Peter talk to us about, or at least remind us of some important things about what they learned at this moment. So this morning we want to start here just looking at this, and I'm going to try not, not to be too long and too complicated here as we go through, but fairly simple, looking at the progress and seeing what it is here. At the heart of this is the glory of God, clearly, because we can't miss it. As you stand here and you look at this, you're overwhelmed with the beautiful glory of God. And at the beginning we see, and one of the first things we want to look at is the pursuit of God's glory. This is, of course, the great goal of all mankind. That's what we were created for the glory of God, to give God glory. And as we begin, we want to see through Jesus how to pursue the glory of God. Our text begins by showing us that Jesus pursues the glory of God in prayer. Prayer is in the pursuit of the glory of God. These extraordinary events, which we, we see here in these verses, begin in really what is a pretty ordinary way. We've seen this scene over and over again through the Gospels. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll, you'll know this. You see it often, don't you? Jesus gets away. He goes into a garden or he goes up into a mountain by himself or with a couple of the others. And he goes there at night to pray. It's a, something we're familiar with in the life of Jesus. It's not an uncommon thing. It's part of, uh, of Jesus' life. In fact, at, at the juncture or at the beginning of every major event in Jesus' life, you will find him in prayer before it. He's always in prayer. It became a part of his life. It was a habit of his life, regardless of the significance of the event, even at hand. So, so significant was the prayer life of Jesus, so wound into the daily nature of his life, that as we will see in just not so long, the disciples will come to him and say, Jesus teaches to pray. Now these are men who have grown up in a, a, a religion which, which prays. And it's a part of what they see every time they go to the synagogue. And it's part of what they're taught to do. And yet as they see Jesus pray, and they come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. And so we'll be looking at that as we come to it in just a few weeks and learning how to pray as Jesus did but here Jesus gets alone you know, with the small few and he takes them up into the mountain. We don't know which one. doesn't identify which mountain he's at. 
Matthew seems to give a little, a few clues that it's probably somewhere around Caesarea Philippi, but we don't know exactly. There is a mountain somewhere, because remember they're traveling down from Galilee down towards Jerusalem, uh, and they've been in that, that area. So it's probably somewhere around there, but we don't know for certain which mountain it is. But he goes up into a mountain that's nearby with these three, who we've come to know as kind of the inner circle of Jesus. These are the three who are when there's some important event or something particularly uh, strong that he wants to teach and set a foundation, it's these three, Peter, James, and John, that are there. And here they are uh, with Jesus. You know, I doubt that there are, are many of us who have a life nearly as busy as Jesus did. Jesus never fails to have prayer in his life. He always made the time for the prayer. We see in the life of Jesus the very importance of prayer. But we also see in this moment the purpose of his prayer, of prayer in general, really. Jesus comes here and he's, he's going into the mountain. He's coming to, to pray with, with purpose and with intent. We don't know the details of this time in prayer. We're not given anything. It doesn't say what he prayed about or how long he was there. It would seem that it's probably been a significant time in prayer because Peter, John, and James are all overcome with sleep. So it's probably a significant time in prayer, but we don't, we don't know that. What we do know, and about the only thing we do know about what Jesus prayed and how he interacted at this moment, is that it included aspects of his death. We're getting very close to that now. We're with inside a year before he will die on the cross. So it's getting very close that Jesus prays isn't remarkable, and uh, the purpose for, for praying here isn't remarkable either. Here is the purpose of prayer, the purpose of any prayer. Same reason Jesus goes to prayer here is the same reason we should all go to prayer at any time, to seek God. That's, it. that's, that's what prayer is for. Prayer is to seek God, and Jesus takes these three men with him, and he goes up onto the mountain to seek God the Father. To spend time with the Father, we read as we spent time in, in Psalm 24 this uh, past Wednesday evening, and in Psalm 24, it reminds us of that very truth. Psalm 24 and uh, verse 4, let me find it for you here. Psalm 27 and verse 4 says, one thing I have desired of the Lord, David says, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's one desire is to seek God, to know God's presence and to be uh, all in awe of his beauty. It says in verse 8, he says, uh, You told me, God says to him, seek me. In fact, verse 8 reads like this. When you said, that is when God said, seek my face. My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. That's prayer. Prayer is to seek God. It's motivated and it's moved by a desire to know God and to do his will. Uh, that's at the heart of it. And like most things, we have a tendency to make it about ourselves. We take prayer, which is at its heart meant to be uh, part of what we use to seek God, to know God, and we turn it into ourselves, what we need and things about us. Now, it doesn't mean that prayer has nothing to do with us. 
but that its purpose isn't us. We are not the purpose of prayer. By seeking God in prayer, by going to God to seek God in prayer, we find what we need in any situation. We will find what we need. We also see the depth of Jesus' prayer. See, prayer is about knowing and doing the will of God. What does God want? 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 and 15 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we have asked of him. See, prayer can be short, and prayer can be long, and prayer can be simple, and it can be complicated. It can be full of emotion, or it can be uh, just pouring out facts and speaking to God in a matter-of-fact way. It can be about one thing, or it can be about many things. Prayer, in its form doesn't really have a, you know, a, a structured form in that it has to be about these things. It comes in a lot of different ways and a lot of different things. But no matter what it is that we go to God for, whether it's one thing, whether it's many, whether it's an eloquent prayer or whether it's simply stated makes no difference. One thing that really matters is that it's not to be superficial, selfish or empty. It's not to be entered into purely on the fact that I get what I want, that I seek God for my own selfish desires or selfish gain. No matter why we go to prayer, the purpose is always the same, to know God and to know his will. This kind of prayer, this depth of prayer, requires firstly a real relationship with God. To know this, to know prayer, to have prayer answered and to, to know the will of God means firstly I have to know God personally. Without that, there is no real prayer. So then we come here as he comes and as he spends time in prayer and he's gone with these things in mind about what prayer is and he's going to, to seek God, to seek the Father. This amazing event takes place something which is, is beyond imagination about what, what happened here. This amazing thing's happened, and the, the thing we, we need to ask ourselves first is why? Why? Why do we have this here? And why do Peter, James, and John get to witness it? What's the, the purpose of having this in the Scriptures, in, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and recorded for us here as one of the most important parts of his life, with his birth and his resurrection? You know, like, like Peter, you know, Peter gets to the end and we laugh at Peter often in this thing because he doesn't seem to know what's going on or, or what's happened even though he was there. And like Peter, uh, many of us just aren't sure what to make of it. What do we do with this passage? Is it, is it just there to put us in awe? Why is it, it here? The primary reason isn't complicated. It, it's not. The reason that it's here isn't complicated. The reason that it's here is simply this, to reveal who Jesus is. It's to reveal to us more of who Jesus is. See, like prayer, in finding more of who he is, we find more of what we need in this life. As we enter into prayer and we seek God, we begin to find out who God is. 
as we find out who God is, we find out how he is able to meet our needs, how he is able to supply uh, our, our encouragement and strength and all that we need and fulfill everything that is ours because he is the goal of all we have. The disciples previously have confessed that they believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, to be saved, that's part of being saved. It's to believe that Jesus is God. But when we do that, when we start at that point to believe that Jesus is God, to genuinely believe he is God, we have no idea the extent of what that means. As we begin our life with Jesus, to understand who Jesus is to be God, is, is we only have just a small glimpse of what it is that as God, he's able to save me from my sin. But to be God, there is so much more to it than that. The disciples are starting to get little glimpses of that here. And then all of a sudden, we have these three men have their eyes opened to what they could never have imagined they could see. They are allowed to be in an event which only a very few people in all of history have ever been able to see. The glory of God. Veiled to some extent, Moses was able to see it, but Moses got to see it only as it passed by as he was hid in a rock and the back of God passes by him. An experience which only a few get to see, they were able to see here. They've been part of his work. Jesus has sent them out and they've been able to do miracles and preach the gospel. They've been filled with his power to do that. And yet, despite the fact that they have been with Jesus, that they have learned from Jesus, that Jesus has given them power at times to do amazing miracles, they still do not know fully who Jesus is. They believe he's God. But what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be God? Now they get just a glimpse of that. One of the great passages of Scripture to this end is in Philippians chapter 2. Those first 10 verses of Philippians chapter 2 are verses which we all need to be really familiar with. You can memorize it, then memorize those verses of Scripture, but read over it. Be familiar with those verses, those first few verses of Philippians chapter 2. But in the midst of this great expression of who Jesus is and what he came to do, it says in verse 7, but, but made himself, that is Jesus, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It starts out, this Jesus Christ, God, fully glorified in heaven, puts on a veil of flesh. The great glory which is God is hidden to us behind the flesh of humanity. And here, in these, these few moments that the disciples had, that veil of flesh is removed just for a moment. They have the opportunity to see God unveiled. Something we won't see till eternity. Peter, James and John get a very rare privilege here. But we get it recorded for us so that we can see and we can live through their experiences. They teach us about it. This is about putting before our eyes who Jesus really is. Who he is. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just uh, a nice idea. 
He's not just one who can give us a, a good path through life or help us to find balance in this life. He's not a revolutionary leader. He's not a feel-good motivator. He's far more than that. He is glorious God in the flesh. As Jesus stands there, perhaps on that mountain that night, and as he prays, two men come to visit him and they speak with him there about his death. Of all that he prays that night, and perhaps this was the only thing that he prayed about that night. It wouldn't surprise me, because we see on a number of occasions through the Gospels how often Jesus goes to prayer simply about this task. This is what he prays about, his coming death. He spoke with the Father about what? About fulfilling his purpose. What's the Father's will? Is that not what prayer was? The prayer is to seek the will of the Father. So he goes to the Father and he speaks about his coming death, which is the will of God. So he goes to talk about fulfilling the purpose of God. I like the word that's used there. Some translations like mine here have uh, in, in the verse there it's that he speaks of, his, um, uh, speaks of his decease. But the word is literally departure. And so many of the English translations do put departure in there. I like the word departure. Because it's not just about his death, is it? It doesn't end with his decease. But rather, his death is a departure. It takes him into death, and then he comes out of it, and then ascends into heaven. You know, that's why we sang so many of the songs we sang this morning, because they speak exactly of that, that God comes down from the heavens to earth, dies, and then goes back into heaven. He's simply departing this earth back to where he came from. So I said the details of the prayer are unknown, but we do know that God's purpose for Jesus weighed very heavily on his heart, weighed very heavily on his mind. Even up to that very last night when he's in the garden, this is what he's praying about. And even at that moment, he is still praying that the Father's will would be done. See, this is why he came. He came for that moment, his decease and departure. He came to be the Savior. He didn't come to make life easier. And he didn't come to help us find balance in this life. He didn't come to make this life profitable or productive. He came to be Savior. And when he goes to prayer, that's what he prays about. The great purpose of God. You know what I find to be the glorious part of this moment? Is we see here Jesus in all of his great glory, speaking of his humiliation. The great juxtaposition. Right, Jesus there with the flesh off for a moment to be in his great glory, and he is talking about the most humiliating moment of his life on earth as he seeks the will of the Father. See, our salvation isn't purchased cheaply. The God of glory paid our price. He paid that humiliating price. And as he prays there and as he seeks the Father in this regard, the Father sends to him two men. 
Exactly what they talked about or exactly why they were there, we don't know. Perhaps it's to encourage him or to remind him of, of things or ju just to, to be there as the support that he needs at that moment. It's a curious thing about these two men, Moses and Elijah, appearing. Why are these two men there? There's a lot of suggestions about why Moses and Elijah appear here. These two men, Moses and Elijah, are amongst the, the, the history of Israel, amongst the, the beauty of Israel. These are the most significant and most trusted men of Israel's history. If you look over the great past of, of Israel, in all of Israel's history, there are really few who would come to the great heights of Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great deliverer the one who would rescue them out of Egypt, bring them through the, the, the wilderness and lead them right up to the border of the promised land. In the midst of all of that, he would be the great intercessor, the one that God would speak to and then he would pass it on. He would be the one who would be the source through which God would pour out his blessings on his people and his judgments on his people. It's Moses who, when they stop at Mount Sinai, who ascends to the top of Mount Sinai and is given the commandments to give to the people. If there was anybody more significant in the history of Israel, it would be hard to find. But Moses... And then there's Elijah, who comes some many years later. But amongst the prophets, it would be again hard to pick a prophet greater than Elijah. Elijah comes at a time in one of the unique times of history where God pours out his power in miracles and, and wonders. And we see in, in Elijah, he, he ministers in a very dark time when, when Israel has a wicked king leading over them and leading them back into worship of idols and, and, and idolatry and sacrificing their children and so many things. In fact, it's Elijah, isn't it, that we know with the, the great uh, uh, event on, on Mount Carmel where the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah, who's challenged them, to show their God to be real. And they dance and they sing and they cut themselves trying to get Baal to take the, the sacrifice on the altar and they can't do it. Then Elijah comes and he builds his, his altar and he puts his sacrifice on it and he just soaks that thing in water. Completely soaks it in water. And in one instant, God sends down fire and consumes it all. That day, 450 false prophets who had convinced the people to believe a lie died. If ever there were two greater men in all of Israel's history, I think you would be hard to pick anybody else besides Moses and Elijah to come and to minister to Jesus. Some other interesting facts about Moses and Elijah. Both of these men had very unusual exits from this world. Moses who because of his sin of striking a rock for water to come out instead of speaking to the rock as he had been commanded is denied to entry into the promised land but God takes him up onto a mountain to overlook that promised land one last moment and there we're told in Deuteronomy that God buried him and to this day no one knows where he is buried God buried Moses said also, Jude tells us in his book, that sometime after the death of Moses, perhaps at the moment, we don't know when, but it says the archangel Michael and the devil fought over the body of Moses. 
Moses left this world in a unique way. Elijah, of course, many of us know the story of Elijah leaving this world as Elijah walks and he talks with his young protege, Elisha. Great chariot of fire comes down out of heaven and separates the two of them. And in a whirlwind, Elijah is taken up into heaven. Elijah does not die. These two men have unique and unusual exits from the world. As a result of their ministries and their places in the world, both of them have a highly esteemed place in redemptive history. Both so important. In fact, we read moments uh, ago in Revelation 11 at the beginning of the service. The reason I read that is because of the events of the way they leave the world and because they are present here at the Transfiguration. Many, many Bible commentators believe that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are indeed Moses and Elijah, which could very well be true. These two men, Moses and Elijah, have come to represent the two great divisions of the Old Testament. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets. We're going to see that that is a significant distinction in just a few minutes. You see, to pursue the glory of God, but also the passion for God's glory. As this takes place, the three disciples who are with him have fallen asleep. Sadly, too many of us, and, and I've fallen into this my, myself, is we, we look down on them at this point, saying, how could they fall asleep? They're up there, they're supposed to be praying. And we get a bit harsh on them here, because they fell asleep while they're praying. Don't be too hard on the apostles. In fact, Scripture is not hard on the apostles here at all. Because it tells us that they were heavy with sleep, literally burdened or overcome with sleep. So they are at the point where they, they are there. The, the limitations of their humanity are on them. They literally cannot keep their eyes open. They're tired. They have had a very strenuous time in these last things. They're, they're up late and they're praying and they're trying to pray. They're tired and they are literally overcome. Their eyelids are burdened. They cannot keep them open. And they fall asleep as Jesus prays. So the sleep was likely involuntary. They hadn't abandoned Jesus. But then at this significant moment, they wake up. And we're told that they are fully awake when they see this. And we can understand that, even if we're in a drowsy, uh, deep sleep, and we're awoken by something, and you're, that adrenaline kicks in, the moment comes, and we're awake. We can see it. And if you were asleep, and then all of a sudden you wake up, and you see the glory of God in front of you, and Moses and Elijah... Um, you're going to rub your eyes and think, hang on, what's going on here? Am I dreaming? John, pinch me. They're awake. They know what's going on now. They're not groggy with sleep. We read about this and, and our imaginations race with awe and wonder. I mean, can you imagine being there, waking up and seeing this before your eyes? And our imaginations just, just run. They saw it filled with wonder and you're even even as we read it and we think about it we're easily overwhelmed to think what the glory of god exposed what what could that be like what would it be like to see god not veiled in the flesh but in his glory the magnificence of it there imagine if you were there 
And Peter says he knows it's good for them to be there. He just doesn't understand why yet. Lord, it's good for us to be here. But he doesn't know why. He has a desire to see God's reign. He has a great passion for God. He really does. And in the midst of Peter's babbling, and you can rib Peter a little bit here for his babbling, I'd probably not be much different. Because <coughs> you know, several of the gospel writers say he just didn't know what he was saying. He was just rambling. And what would you do? If you see this, you, well, what do you say? And so he rambles for a little bit. He doesn't really understand what it is. But what he does know is this. He does not want this moment to end. And that's why he says, let's build three tabernacles. Let's build three tents. Perhaps in his mind, because I think at this time, uh, we're getting close to or about the time of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So perhaps that's in his mind as well. And he's thinking, well, let's, let's, let's build these, these tents here and let's let everyone just stay. Why can't we right now, Jesus, just have the kingdom start? You can be here and we can leave it here and you can rule and you can reign and, and we might as well have Elijah and Moses stay here. And we'll just start the kingdom now and let you rule. He has a great desire here. And his desire is a godly desire to want to see God reign. One of the things we do learn from Peter is this, that passion needs knowledge. <clears throat> passion needs knowledge. Much of the passion that Peter has at this moment comes from some knowledge. He knows what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. He knows that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So the Old Testament tells us Messiah will come and he will come in glory and he will bring his kingdom and he will rule. He's read that through the prophets. He knows what to expect. That's what all of Israel is looking for. That's why on Palm Sunday, everyone's crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, or it is, save us, Lord, save us, because they are expecting Jesus to rule. And right now, Peter just sees the glory and he says, why not now? Why wouldn't he rule now? Let's, let's just do it. You can be king over all. It's a desire, I think, that every believer has. Right? If Jesus turned up today and saw his glory, wouldn't we want the same thing? Jesus, just stop the insanity and rule. Take it all away and let's just have you be the great king that you could be. be no reason, I think, that I wouldn't say the same thing if I saw him in this manner. Free us from the oppression and free us from sin and all its effects. Let's let just Christ reign in beauty and glory and grandeur. You know, this is what Jesus meant when he said in verse 27, but I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. At that moment, Peter, James, and John see a glimpse of the kingdom. They see Christ in all his glory. But here is a truth we all need to be reminded of. Passion without knowledge misses God's purpose. Peter has a great deal of passion <clears throat> and knowledge. He knows what the Messiah is to come for, that there is a kingdom, the messianic kingdom there, and Christ will rule and he will reign. And he's jumping on that 
But what has he missed? What was Jesus talking about with Moses and Elijah? His death. Peter's jumped over it. Perhaps he didn't hear it. Perhaps he was so in awe of the moment and thinking about what it is that the fact of the death of Jesus escaped him. But what he has done in his passion and in the knowledge that he has, which is incomplete, he's jumped over a very important part of God's purpose. He wants to have the glory without the cross. Of course, Jesus knows you can't have the crown without the cross. If Jesus was to follow Peter's instructions and say, let's start the kingdom now, we'll do it now, and we skip the cross, that has disastrous implications. Huge, unfortunate, and terrible implications to miss one part of God's purpose to pursue another part of his purpose. To skip ahead would be disastrous. And so, there is at the end a proclamation. Moses and Elijah begin to leave. As they leave, of course, Peter says, no, let's, let's keep this going. Let's not let this end. And as Moses and Elijah leave, a cloud moves in and completely envelops them. It, of course, reminds us of the great cloud of the Old Testament, what we know as the Shekinah, which is the presence of God. It was that cloud which was with Israel in the wilderness, which during the day was a cloud and they followed it and saw that the presence of God was with them. And at night was a pillar of fire so that they could see the presence of God with them. And here that same presence of God descends on them and completely envelops them in a cloud. The presence of God is there. The reason the presence of God is there is firstly to assure them of his presence. You know, if God is there and in the midst of this cloud, what is the, the feeling that you get if you're completely surrounded, completely enveloped by something? It is that you are, there's nowhere now that they can go where they're now not in the presence of God. They are completely surrounded by him. It is a picture of his omnipresence. That he is everywhere, that he sees all, that he knows all. And as they stand there, unsure about what they've seen, unsure about what to do with what they have just experienced, the Father comes and completely envelops them and reminds them that he is there and that he knows exactly what's going on and exactly what will be going on. See, not only does his presence there, assure them of his presence continuing, his omniscience, but it also reminds them that if he is present and if he knows everything and if he has determined this, this is his will. The very thing that Jesus was talking about with, uh, with Moses and Elijah, the death, with the very thing which Peter didn't think of, which he skipped over, is the exact thing that God has willed to happen. And he is there to remind them, this is my will. And then he makes a proclamation. Out of the, the cloud comes a voice. 
a voice which repeats the same things we heard at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son, Matthew and others include, in whom I'm well pleased. Here Jesus says, this is my beloved, or God says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. What he reminds us of in those words is that he is pleased with Jesus. He is pleased with what is taking place. The death of Christ pleases God. We sang a song just a moment, just before we started. Christ was crushed and it pleased the Father. It did. It pleased the Father because it accomplished his purpose. It brought salvation to the people of God. And then he says to us, hear him. Hear him. It's a command. Listen to him above all others. Listen to him above all others. You remember as they were standing there, there were three of them in glory. There was Jesus, there was Moses, and there was Elijah. Moses, the Old Testament law. Something held in high regard by all Jews. Elijah, the great prophets. And now the father says, you've heard Moses, You've heard Elijah. You've heard the law. You've heard the prophets. Hear Jesus. He supersedes them all. He is better than the law. He is better than the prophets. Not because he does away with them, but because he fulfills them. He completes them. Hear him. Listen to him. And the call to us today is exactly the same. Hear him. Hear Jesus. Perhaps today, the call to you to hear him is to hear him as your savior. To hear the call to believe that he is God and he can save you from your sin. Or perhaps today, as a believer, you need to seek him and hear him. Look for his will in the word and in prayer. This is one of the most striking events in all of scripture. Jesus is seen for who he really is. God. It reminds us to grow continually in our understanding of who he is. To pursue his purpose. Here is the beauty of it. One day, one day, perhaps not so far from this very day, we will know in perfection what now we only know in part. It'll be like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, for we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Right now we read a passage like this and we're in awe of what could be. One day our faith will be sight. We will see him face to face. Like all who've gone before us, 
We live for Jesus in this world now, pursuing to know him better, waiting for that day when our faith will be made sight. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these brief moments, moments which to put into words or to describe in a sermon is almost impossible. Lord, as we've asked before, show us your ways, teach us your word, that we might come to know you better, understand your will, and glory in who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one song of, of uh, reflection this morning, face to face. As we get to the, the fourth verse, I think on this one I'll pass the offering bag around if you would like to give. But as we sing a song of reflection, face to face I shall behold him far beyond the stars. Will you stand with me as we sing this? <coughs>
morning with these words as uh, benediction the words which really work as the benediction for all of scripture and the hope of all God's people he who testifies these things says surely I am coming quickly amen even so come Lord Jesus the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all